That last part of it, being a pretty good guy, was an unauthorized part of the bio. So uh, uh, let's commit this to the Lord again. Father, thank you for our time together. We commit it to you now. Please watch over us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so uh, I want to take an informal survey before beginning this talk on the promise of infant baptism. And you've got four options. You can be settled pedo. You can be leaning pedo. You can be leaning Baptist or settled Baptist. All right. So settled pedo. All right. Leaning pedo. Uh, leaning Baptist. Settled Baptist. All right, good. I just needed to know what adjectives to use. <laughs> the talk is going to be the same. Going to be the same talk regardless. I just wanted to know what I'm doing here. All right. So, um, so here's the deal. I don't want to. Uh, I would like the talk to be informative and persuasive, but informative and persuasive to what end? I'm not trying to get any of. Uh, our Baptist brothers in trouble, where you have to go back home and say what happened in Moscow stays in Moscow. <laughs> no, nothing, nothing like that. Um, what, what I would like to do, for, for those of you who are leaning pedo or, or settled pedo, I want you to see some of the, uh, the undergirding, some of the theological framework uh, that supports the doctrine of infant baptism, the promise of infant baptism, uh, we'll be focusing on. If you're, uh, if you're Baptistic, leaning Baptistic, uh, my, my goal is more modest. What I'd like you to do is see that your paedo-baptist brothers are not out of their minds. Right? Uh, so, so, for example, the experience that many people had, you know, they grew up Catholic, they were baptized in infancy, they got converted through crusade at college, they went and bought a Bible, they looked up, they got a concordance, or they searched on, on um, some Bible software. Logos Bible software has got a booth. Out the, um, so they looked up baptism, they, they, uh, and they went through the book of Acts, and they looked at every instance of baptism, and every time someone's baptized in the New Testament, they repent, they believe, and they're baptized. There you go. And so they said, well, I guess they're a new Christian. I love Jesus now. That's what I better do, right, because... When I was a kid, I didn't know, uh, didn't know anything, and uh, that's not uh, what happened to me. Uh, it doesn't happen anywhere in the book of Acts, and so it's, it's sort of um, easy-peasy. Let's just go this route. I think it's a very—I believe that when it comes to that kind of approach, uh, the Baptists have what I would call a slam-dunk case. All right? this, is, this is what I'm supposed to do. Um, when I was working through all of this as a, uh, as a Baptist, and I, I, it's a long story, but I'd started to, I, after I became Calvinistic, I began preaching in a Reformed Calvinistic way, and uh, it was a Baptist church, Baptistic church, and Presbyterians started to show up because it was the only Reformed preaching here on the Palouse, and so people who had Presbyterian backgrounds started coming to our church. And some of them were young marrieds, and, and one of them had a baby, and they asked me to baptize the baby, and I, are you out of your mind? What? And I thought, well, I, I better study this. I, I better study this. And one of the books I read during that time, which provoked a comment from Nancy, um, it was it, the best Baptist book that I've read. I read a bunch of stuff in every direction. The best Baptist uh, case that I read was the uh, Infant Baptism in the Covenant of Grace by Jewett. That, was the, and that book was in my briefcase, and Nancy looked at it and said, what are you reading? 
<laughs> I said, it's against it. It's against it. Um, <laughs> don't, don't worry. Well, um, one of the things that Paul Jewett says in that book, and this is what I, I want to have you get some glimpse of, because I'm going to be giving a talk about infant baptism, and in this talk, there's, there's no water. I've got no water in this, um, uh, in this talk, and you might wonder, that's, that's a strange thing. Well, uh, what Jewett says is that if you talk about baptism and historic baptisms and baptisms in the, uh, in the book of Acts, uh, the case is solid, basically overwhelmingly baptistic. But Paul Jewett, a, a, a stout Baptist, said that if you get onto the topics of, basically, if you get onto the covenant, if you start, if you're not talking about water, not talking about baptism, but you start talking about covenant, he said the Reformed paedobaptists have a juggernaut of a case. Right? He said it's, it's not something to be lightly uh, set aside. So I would say you don't need to just look up baptism, you need to look up Olive branches, olive trees, covenant, circumcision, Israel, um, church. There's a there is a case here that's theological. Before we we before we get to the first instance of a child uh, being baptized. So that said, that's the that's the preliminary con, uh, context for this. And um, wish me luck. So, so the pro the <laughs> no. <laughs> so the promise of the new covenant, the promise of the new covenant is that the new covenant will do what the old covenant could not really do. The promise of the new covenant is that the new covenant will accomplish, will do what the old covenant could not fulfill, could not do. And what the old covenant could not really do is keep the kids. Right, that's the pattern throughout the Old Testament. Did Israel keep their, keep their kids, keep their children faithful to the covenant generation after generation? No, that, it appears to be uh, they fall away. Just fall away again. God delivers them, they fall away. So the new covenant, the new covenant is not the time when all the unfulfilled promises of the old covenant are abrogated. The new covenant is not the time when the unfulfilled promises of the old covenant are abrogated. The new covenant is not the moment when God finally says, never mind. I, prom I, I promised a bunch of stuff in the old covenant, and you guys keep screwing it up, so never mind. The old covenant is not where God overpromised, and the new covenant is where he underdelivers. That's not the way it is. No, the new covenant is the time when the unfulfilled promises of the old covenant are finally brought to fruition and are fulfilled. So the new covenant does what the old covenant couldn't do. And what the old covenant couldn't do is keep the people faithful over generations. That's what the old covenant could not get done. So the new covenant is the time when the unfulfilled promises of the old covenant are finally brought to fruition and fulfilled. So here's the pattern in the Old Testament. We see this pattern over and over again. The people get into sin, then they consequ consequently get into trouble. You get into sin, then you get into trouble. Then they cry out to the Lord. Then the Lord graciously delivers them. The people are grateful for about 10 minutes. Then you turn the page, and the people are getting into sin. 
And that you do that about 20 times, and that's the book of Judges. That's the Old Testament all the way through. The people, they, they get into trouble, they get into, they get into sin, get into trouble, cry out for deliverance, uh, God delivers them, they're grateful, and then they start getting into sin. They, they do it again. So, the fault of that covenant was not to be found in the covenant, but rather in the people. The, the fault was the people. The thing, that was the thing that kept messing it up was the people. This is what Hebrews 8, 7, and 8 says. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, the new covenant. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I, will, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, what he's saying is the first covenant keeps not coming up with the goods. The old covenant keeps failing, but the failure is not in the covenant. The failure is with the people. He finds fault with them when he says. So when God promises a new covenant, he is finding fault with the people under the old covenant. All right? It wasn't that God's word was imperfect. It's that the people were imperfect. The people would not keep covenant. When God redresses this problem through the new covenant, he does not say something like, he does not say something like, in the old covenant, your descendants were faithless, but in the new covenant, I will sidestep that problem entirely by making your descendants irrelevant. That's not, he doesn't sidestep it by saying, well, don't worry about kids and grandkids now. In the Old Covenant, I promised you your kids and grandkids. I promised to a thousand generations your kids and grandkids, and you kept falling away, but never mind, that's not going to work. I, I overpromised. So now in the New Covenant, I'm going to underdeliver. It's just individual by individual, and that's all. Right? That's not what, I, I don't believe that that's what God is doing. So here's the organic illustration. In the Old Testament, a standard figure for Israel was that of an olive tree. Uh, just like we think of America in terms of amber waves of grain, uh, a, a common trope or a common um, uh, image for Israel was that of an olive tree. And if we remember this when we come to Romans 11, as we should, the weighty import of Paul's illustration should hit us between the eyes. There's, there's, there's some glaringly obvious things about the olive tree in Romans 11. It's just one tree. The olive tree in Romans 11 is one tree, one with ancient roots, which spans the transition between the older and the newer covenants. The olive tree of the covenant is a tree that straddles both old and new covenant. All right? the, the olive tree is a tree that existed in the old covenant, and it's a tree that exists in the new. Okay, Because Jews were cut out of the olive tree, and you Roman Christians, you Roman new covenant Christians, were grafted into the olive tree that the Jews of the old covenant were cut out of. It's the same It's the same tree. The Roman Christians had been grafted into the same tree that Caiaphas had grown on and had been pruned from. Caiaphas had grown on the tree. He was an Israelite, and he was pruned from the tree because of his unbelief, and you Roman Christians have been grafted into that same tree. So we're dealing with one Abrahamic tree. 
We're dealing with one tree. We're not considering two trees with a similar nature. We do not have an olive tree and a peach tree, for example. It's not like the old covenant Israelites were the olive tree, and now that we're in the new covenant, God chops that tree down, chainsaws it, and then plants a new tree, a peach tree, that's going to do a lot better. That's not the image. That's not the metaphor. And neither do we have two trees. Uh, so an olive tree and a peach tree would both be biological trees. Neither do we have two trees with completely different natures, an olive tree and a stainless steel tree from which no branches can be removed, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Right, you, you don't have a tree that branches cannot be taken out of because Paul warns the Roman Christians that the Jews failed because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. He says, do not be haughty, but fear. If God could remove the natural branches that grew on the tree, how much more could he remove you guys who were grafted into the tree? Right? Don't, don't be haughty, but fear. And now this, just let me uh, hit the pause button and step to, uh, aside for a moment. Um, I, I'm uh, Calvinistic in my soteriology. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe that the elect cannot fall away. Right? The, the, those who are decretally elect, those whom God chose before the foundation of the world, cannot fall away. So the perseverance of the saints that is taught in standard Calvinistic soteriology, I accept, I buy, I hold to it. I think it's glorious. But that's not the same thing as saying that you cannot fall away from your covenant standing. You can, you can fall away from your position in the visible church. Any, any church that practices church discipline knows that someone can be a member of the visible church and can be taken out of it. What I'm, what I'm insisting on is that relationship to the visible church is a thing in the Bible. It's not Church membership is not just a thing that we do that we can take people out of. Visible church membership, membership in the covenant, is an objective reality that God sees, respects, and recognizes such that when you're taken out of it, you're really taken out of something. You're really taken out of something that's spiritually valuable. So um, when Paul says, do not be haughty but fear, the Roman Christians could not write back to Paul and say, Paul, you're mistaken. We don't need to worry about being taking, taken out of the olive tree because in the new covenant, no one can fall from the olive tree. No one can be taken out of the olive tree. But that's, that flies in the face of Paul's whole illustration. It flies in the face of his exhortation. He's telling them to be wary, to walk carefully. Don't make the mistake that the Jews made. So, one tree. One tree, one Abrahamic tree. Remember that, and everything else follows. Right? One tree, if you remember that, if you hold on to that, everything else follows. So what's the normal way to get onto an olive tree? Well, Psalm 128.3. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thy house, thy children like olive plants round about thy table. The normal way to get onto an olive tree is to grow there. That's the, the, the normal way to get into the covenant is to be in, the co in a covenant family. So now um, in Presbyterian, Paedo-Baptist circles, we like the word covenant. We name our churches after the covenant. We, as my friend Yost Nixon once said, you believe in covenant peanut butter and covenant jelly. Uh, every, 
everything is the everything is the covenant. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so one answer is to grow there. What's another secondary way to get onto an olive tree? This way is artificial, but it's an artifice that results in organic growth. The answer is to have a master gardener graft you onto the tree. That's a way to get onto the olive tree also. So you can grow there, or you can be grafted in. When you grow there, you just grow up in the church. When you are grafted there, you're a pagan, you're a heathen, you hear a street preacher when you're at college, and you repent and are converted, and you ask for baptism, you're baptized, you're grafted into the tree. You, weren't, you lived 20 years without any reference to the tree. Now that you've repented, you're grafted into the tree. All right? But if you grow up in the church, if you, uh, if you cannot remember a time, even though I grew up in a Baptist household, I cannot remember a time when I didn't know and love Jesus Christ. I, I, don't, have a, I don't have a pre-Christian experience that I can point to, that I can remember or rec- recall at all. Now, someone, oh, just another comment by the by. The by uh, someone might say, um, uh, yeah, but... There's nowhere in the book of Acts where it says something like, and they took the infant Demetrius uh, to the Apostle Paul, and he baptized the infant. Right? Yeah, absolutely. You don't have that. That's, that's utterly and entirely absent from the New Testament. I was baptized in a Christmas Eve service when, um, when I was 10 years old, Christmas Eve, and, uh, and what happened to me is not found in the book of Acts either, right? In the book of Acts, there's no kid growing up in a Christian home with Christian parents, loving and serving and praying to God and, and functioning as a Christian, who then went forward uh, at an invitation in a Southern Baptist church and was baptized in a Christmas Eve service. That's not in there either, right? My, my experience of professing faith, having grown up in a Christian home, is, is, also, is, is equally absent from the, the book of Acts. So you can grow on the tree, you can be grafted onto the tree. Now here's what Paul says in Romans 11. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert graft in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches." But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Now, I... um, Here's another, there's a lot of anecdotal things here. I, uh, a number of years ago, when I, first, when I first came into Calvinistic convictions, I was, I was Baptistic, I became a Calvinist in 1988, and I didn't become Paedo-Baptist until 1993. So there's about five years there where I was a Reformed Baptist, Calvinistic Baptist. And there was a, uh, a woman, good friend of my wife's, uh, a good friend of my wife's who's now with the Lord, uh, who had grown up the daughter of a Nazarene pastor, had spent many, many years in the Nazarene church. And um, she came to me one day and said, because of all of that background, 
she came to me, they'd come into the Doctrines of Grace, and she said, would you please, sometime, would you please preach on John 15? I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me. And I, uh, because that, there's a section in there where the, if you don't produce fruit, you're cut out of, I'm the vine, Christ, and you're cut out of the vine and taken away and burned. And, and one of the things we reform types have to remember is when it comes to apostasy and falling away, the Arminians have a lot of verses, right? You've fallen from grace. Uh, a dog returns to its vomit. Uh, uh, there, there are many, 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 many apostasy ver- verses. And some of them are not just from an external profession, but like John 15 and Romans 11, there's an organic connection to Christ. There's some sort of connection to Christ that's not salvific, that doesn't have to do with the eternal decrees, but which the person objectively and really in, in real time loses. And so this woman asked me, would you please preach on John 15? And my thought bubble above my head was, not on your life. I'm not going to preach on that because I have nothing, whatever, to say. Because I wasn't going to mangle the text. And I knew, I, I knew that Calvinistic soteriology was correct. I was fully convinced from Scripture of the perseverance of the saints. But I didn't know what to do with that passage. And I, didn't know, I wouldn't know what to do with this passage either. Fear. Do not be high-minded, but fear. Fear what? Removal from the tree. Now, can you be removed from God's sovereign decree? Absolutely not. Can you be removed from the tree? Absolutely. That means the olive tree is not the sovereign decree. It's it's not the tree of the sovereign decree. It's the tree of something else. What's it it the tree of? It's the tree of the covenant. It's it's, It's the tree of God's visible covenantal people. So, it was a radical pruning job on the one hand and a drastic grafting job on the other. So God cut all of the unbelieving branches out in the first century. The unbelieving Jews were cut out, and the believing Gentiles were grafted in to that same tree. It was a radical pruning job on the one hand, drastic grafting job on the other. Zechariah 13.8 says, And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. Uh, that's my basis for, I, my estimate is that about a third of the Jews uh, remained faithful and, and remained in the tree and about two-thirds were cut out. I think that the faithful remnant was about a third and the apostate Jews who were cut out were about two-thirds. That left plenty of room for the Gentiles to be grafted in. But when they are put in the same place, they are given the same warnings. When they're put into the same place that the Jews had been in, they're given the same warnings. And Paul goes out of his way to give them the same warnings. Because people are being cut out and grafted in, it's not possible to speak of this tree as somehow being the tree of decretal election. It cannot be the tree of decretal election. It has to be the tree of the visible church. And that means the visible church goes back millennia before Christ. It is the church of the covenant. It is the church of the covenant. Now, work with me because there's the, you need to put your thumb on a couple of places and remember certain things. The central mistake, I would argue, the central mistake that our Reformed Baptist brothers make is this. It's the mistake of drawing contrasts 
between the new covenant people of God and the old covenant people of God at precisely the places where the New Testament draws parallels. Right, the mistake is to draw a contrast between the old and the new covenant people at precisely the place where the New Testament repeatedly draws parallels. This is what I mean. Now, before, um, uh, before critiquing this, I want to say this is an easy mistake to make. It is a natural and understandable mistake to make because there are many places where the two covenants are contrasted. There are many places where the two covenants are contrasted, but they are not contrasted across the board. They're not contrasted. I think in my book, um, To a Thousand Generations, there's one chapter where I think of 20 plus uh, uh, differences between the Old and the New Covenant that the New Testament describes. There are many, many, many differences, glory and fruitfulness and many uh, differences. But they are not differences in every respect at every, uh, in every um, way. When it comes to the relationship of election, membership in the covenant, and apostasy, the parallels are exact. The parallels are exact. It's not, it's not contrasted at all. Um, and if you want to study this in depth, I would, I would um, urge you to look at Romans 11, Hebrews 3 and 4, and 1 Corinthians 10. Those are the places where the, the parallels are emphasized. Here are a couple of phrases from 1 Corinthians 10 and one from Romans 11. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So the Jews wandering around in the wilderness, with many of them falling because of unbelief, some of them staying faithful, Joshua and Caleb going into the land, and you know, there were the faithful Israelites, and there were the unfaithful Israelites. Um, Paul says, these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. That's verses 5 and 6. A few verses later, in 9, 9 through 12, he says to the Corinthian Christians, New Covenant members, he says, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur, murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the, of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Now, Paul is pointing to the apostasy of covenant members in the wilderness, falling over, keeling over, rebelling against Moses, doing bad things, uh, uh, falling into idolatry. And he says, do you Corinthians see that? Those things were written down as an example for you because you are in exactly the same place. Your position is exactly what theirs is, right? When it comes to apostasy, covenant membership, etc. Now, uh, when you read through 1 Corinthians, it's like listening to one half of a phone conversation. Um, Paul has received a list of questions from the Corinthians, and he's just bullet pointing through them. He's just going through them. And he's, the, the Corinthians were, were putting on airs, kind of like the Roman Christians were putting on airs. Well, the Jews were excluded. The Jews were taken out so that we might be brought in. We have, we have baptism. They didn't have baptism. We have baptism. We have the Lord's Supper. 
And Paul says they did too have baptism. Our fathers were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. We have Christ. He says they had Christ. The rock that accompanied them was Christ. They drank from the rock that was Christ. We have the Lord's Supper. Well, they, have, they, have, they have spiritual food, spiritual food falling out of heaven. They had spiritual drink. Everything that you Corinthians are taking pride in, baptism, uh, Christ, uh, uh, spiritual food, spiritual drink, he said they had, they had that same thing too, and they were, with many of them, God was displeased. All right, so don't you do what they did. And what, what did they do? Well, this is the, the, my next talk, which is the peril of infant baptism. The temptation, for people who believe in the covenant, the, the pressing temptation is covenant presumption. Covenant pres that, that's the peril, is you start taking these things for granted, and you don't walk by faith, you walk by presumption. Right? So that's what he's uh, cautioning them against. Then Romans 11, 19 through 21. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I, may, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Now, we, these, are, these warnings that God gives the, the covenant members of the New Testament are not beware of the cliff signs in the middle of Kansas. It's not, God's not warning us against things that can't happen. He's not warning us against things that can't happen. He's warning us about things that can, and we're in the process of happening, and we're, we're happening. Hebrews 3 and 4 is all about some Jews who are Jewish Christians who are about to go back to Jerusalem to the sacrifice of bulls and goats in a masterpiece of bad timing because it was right before the destruction of Jerusalem. And in Hebrews 3 and 4, he brings up, the author brings up the same pattern of the, the Jews in the wilderness. So here's the promised tree. Given the promised outcome for the olive tree, given that the, pro the promised outcome is eschatological glory, we're not going to see the olive tree at the last day as a forlorn stump with a couple of suckers sticking up around the base. No, Isaiah 27, 6 says, He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. What's going to happen to the, what's going to happen to the tree? What's going to happen to the tree of the Christian church? It's going to fill the world with fruit. Just as the, uh, the earth is going to be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, uh, to change the image to a fruit-bearing tree. The church is the new Israel. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Remember, th th that's an old covenant promise. That's not one of God's over-promises. And then in the new covenant, he under-delivers because there are only going to be 15 or 16 true Christians and they're going to be raptured out. Right. That's not... No, what's going to happen? Israel is going to blossom and bud. Israel is going to fill the earth with fruit. So what this means is that the admonitions to the Christians, the admonitions to the Christians in the New Testament parallel the admonitions given to the Jews. Because of our eschatological optimism, and this is one of the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, uh, we do not believe that the outcome for the tree will be the same as it was in 70 AD when God cut out two-thirds of the branches. So the olive tree grows down through history, and 
when it comes to the climatic judgment in 70 AD, God cuts out most of the branches, leaving a third of the branches, and then grafting in all these Gentile branches. He, Paul then, in this, with this coming up, Paul turns to the Roman Christians. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Rome was the capital city of a major empire, one of the, the grandest empire the world had seen. It was, well, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's head was gold, and you go down. But in terms of uh, power and authority and extent and stuff, Rome was considerable. Uh, I won't say it was the the finest empire ever seen, but it was it was spectacular. It was one of the empires I'm sure that the devil used to tempt the Lord Jesus. Here's the the kingdoms of the world and all their and all their glory. They really did have a true glory, and. The Roman church was a church in that capital city. There's a difference, and we, we understand this because the United States is a world power, it's a superpower, and if you're the pastor of a church in Washington, D.C., and you've got secretaries of state teaching Sunday school there, and senators coming, and presidents coming, and visiting dignitaries and diplomats coming and going, you're gonna have a very different vibe if you're the pastor of that church than if you're the pastor of a church in East, East Toad Flats, Arkansas, or Beauville, Idaho. Right, you're going you're gonna to be, well, I've got this little community church and 10 people show on a good Sunday. Right? You're not going to, you, temptations to pride afflict us everywhere we go. But if you're, if you're a pastor in an influential capital of an influential superpower, you're going to have all kinds of things go straight to your head. And Paul saw this developing already in the church at Rome. This is why he's telling the church at Rome not to be high-minded, but to fear. Um, and here we are 2,000 years later, and the church at Rome is still making grandiose claims. We, we sometimes forget that the letter to the Romans is a letter to that church. Right? This is a, Paul saw this temptation coming, and he said, do not be haughty but fear. And I believe that we can say that the Roman Christians over time, the first few centuries they did all right, but uh, they, they drifted into this, the very sin that Paul is warning them against, and that's the sin of covenant presumption. I'm baptized, I'm good. I'm baptized, that's it. No, it's all, from first to last, it's evangelical faith. So the warnings to individuals function in the same way. The ratios are different. The structure of the warnings is the same. So uh, if, if two-thirds are cut out and one-third left in, compared to 1% cut out and 99% left in, you've got, that's what I mean by the ratio is different, but the structure is the same. If you, if you remain, you remain because of faith. If you're removed, it's because of unbelief. That's, that's where they're exactly parallel. The thing that's different is God promises that in the new covenant, the church is going to blossom and bud and fill the earth with fruit. So at the conclusion of the older covenant, a remnant was saved and the majority was removed. At the conclusion of the old covenant, a remnant was saved, the majority was removed. At the conclusion of the times of the New Testament, the, the, the New Testament era, the era of grace that we're in. At the conclusion of our times, the majority is saved and a remnant is removed. 
The ratios are different, but in both testaments, there are fruitful branches and fruitless branches. In both testaments, there are fruitful branches and fruitless branches. And everybody knows that every pastor, every seasoned pastor, knows that there are people in the church that are just ticking the box. They're, you know, they were born here, they grew up here, this is their church, but there's no evangelical light in their eyes, there's no love for Christ and his word, and they're, and they, they're not troublemakers, they're not downtown shooting out the streetlights or hitting the saloons, but they're, they're just not hungry for spiritual things. Every church has that problem. And what, what I'm saying is that those people are really on the tree, but they're, really on the, they're not on the tree in a salvific way. Salvation is by, justification is by grace through faith alone. Alone, not through the mechanism of the church. It's by grace through faith alone. So the ratios are different, but in both testaments you have fruitful branches, and in both testaments you have fruitless branches. So what do I mean by the structure being the same? I mean that some remain faithful and some do not. Some remain, but some can be 2%, some can be 75%. Right? You, you see that? The, but you have the same structure. When someone says, but if you baptize an infant, if, if you baptize an infant, you have no idea whether he's going to walk with God for his entire life. Yeah, that's true. I also have no idea if a 25-year-old college kid asks to be baptized, and I met him last week. I have no idea there. And in fact, if I'm baptizing the fifth child of a covenant family, and they've been in the church for 20 years, and the four kids ahead of them love Jesus and are walking with the Lord, I've got a much better idea that that fifth kid is going to walk with the Lord all of his life than I do this guy I just met. Right? Now, uh, this guy I just met, I, I believe that we're, we're encouraged to baptize blind. Right? When someone professes faith, we're, um, it wasn't very long before the church began putting people through their paces and making them be uh, successful catechumens and answer the question, and then, then you can be baptized. That, that developed fairly early on. But in the book of Acts, people are baptized on the same day they profess faith. At the day of Pentecost, they're baptized that day. Nobody checked, nobody was checking on anybody's bona fides. Right? What they were doing is saying, do you believe in Jesus? They asked the questions straight up, and then they baptized them, and they, then, they held them to that, uh, then they held them to that commitment. So when I baptize an infant, uh, when I baptize an infant, I'm baptizing, ultimately, I'm baptizing blind. I don't know the outcome. I don't know if, if that person, if this child is in the book of life. I don't, I don't know that. But I don't know that uh, for anybody right? because we're finite, we're limited, we're bounded, and so we have to uh, study the scriptures and, and pursue obedience to the scriptures as best we know. I just, um, one time, I, I don't know, I don't know what made me just think of this, but uh, Mark Twain, who's not generally a repository of theological wisdom, um, Mark Twain was once asked if he believed in infant baptism. And Twain said, believe in it? I've seen it done. <laughs> so the issue is not whether we can physically do it. The issue is, does it, 
does it have the import that we are claiming for it? Does it have the status? Does it have grounding in the New Testament? So it's always the case, I want to argue, that whether you're Baptist, Agno-Baptist, Pado-Baptist, regardless, if you're a faithful evangelical church and you have more than two people, right, the, the, and me, and I've got my doubts about the, um, if, you've, if you've got more than a handful of people, it's always going to be the case that the regenerate church is a subset of the visible church. It is always going to be the case. Give it 10 minutes, give it 10 months, give over time. The regenerate church, where the root of the matter is present, where the people are really born again, is a subset of the visible church. In the time of Elijah, it was a teeny subset. Elijah was tempted to think that he was the only one left. God says, no, it's way better than that. It's bigger than your teeny, but it was still teeny. 7,000 have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000. But 7,000 out of presumably a population of tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions, 7,000 was not very many. The time of the, the, the regenerate church in the time of Elijah was a teeny subset. But Israel was Israel. The, Israel was still the covenant people, and there was a teeny remnant. In the time of the penultimate president of the Western Hemisphere, in the future sometime, let us call him Gregorio the Magnificent. <laughs> this being 100 years before the second coming. So down the road, 100 years before the second coming, pretty much everybody is saved, except for a few holdouts in the English departments of Indiana University in Bloomington <laughs> and UCSC at Santa Cruz. <laughs> you say, well, uh, well, to say that you, to, to uh, appeal to a post-millennial hope, I'm a post-millennial, not only am I a pedo-baptist, but I'm a post-millennialist, to appeal to this post-millennial hope does not mean that you're saying that every last person will be converted. It's not that you're saying that there will be absolutely no unbelief. It's that what we're saying is that the gospel is going to be successful and there will be a Christian consensus throughout the world. Nations will honor the Lord Jesus Christ and there will be people here and there who don't mean it. There will be people here and there who go along with it, don't mean it. There will be a few holdouts who say, I don't want to be a hypocrite. They don't mean it. But there's going to be genuine faith because, um, uh, across the board because Jesus said that he came, didn't, did not come to judge the world, but to save it. Jesus I didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. Now, I believe that that means that the world will be saved. And that means that going from here to there, uh, it's not like the kingdom of God does not progress like a, uh, a space shuttle taking off. It doesn't progress that way. It's more like walking up uh, the foothills into a mountain range where you, you walk up and then down into a canyon and then up and then down into a ravine and then up. So the kingdom, and, and I think currently in North America, we're in a deep ravine. I think uh, we're in bad trouble. I believe the other parts of the world, Africa, South America, the kingdom of God is progressing at a nice clip, walking up a, walking up a long slope, but I think we're in a canyon. I think we're in a ravine. But if we keep going the direction that God requires us to go, which is into the future, 
we, we don't, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whoa, that's heavy. Um, if we keep going into the future as God has decreed, the end of the process is going to be a world that is saved. Jesus Christ is going to reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. If that's the case, and if the church is part of this process, that means the church is growing from immaturity to, to maturity, and that means that there were times when uh, the church didn't have its act together, and when the church was initially baptized, just think of it this way. Yeah, you might hear more that will reinforce this later. When the, day of, when the day of Pentecost happened and God baptized the church, the church was in its infancy. So there's your infant baptism. <laughs> so, but we need to grow up. And that means we need to grow up into what we profess and, faith and, and believe, and we need to study the scriptures and have it all grounded in scripture. So uh, the promise of infant baptism is this. God's God is the one, as, as it says, as he said, makes it explicit. God is the one who keeps covenant forever. And if you believe that the, that the olive tree is the tree of the covenant, God is going, that tree, that tree that was planted aeons ago is still going to be here when Jesus comes. That's, it's the same tree. And, God, and, and that tree is still going to be here bearing fruit, filling the face of the world with fruit, not because we've got our act together, but because God is a covenant-keeping God. Our Father and God, we thank you for your kindness to us. I pray that as we meditate on these things, you would give us clarity. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.